AJ Howard, thank you very much for coming in today. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be back. I appreciate it. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about what retirement's been like for you since you've been out the doors here at Gilman. Well, uh, a lot of traveling. Um, uh, Kenneth and I hit the road fairly early on after we got out. Uh, we did a trip out west to Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Oregon. So we did um, Yellowstone and uh, Grand Teton and then drove across to Oregon, to the Oregon coast, and did the northern Oregon coast. Oh, cool. It was really, uh, really, really special, really good. I got to see uh, an old student of mine from way back when who was living out in Ketchum, Idaho. Nice. Which is Sun Valley, which is beautiful, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Like the nearest city is Boise, and it's a two-hour drive. Mm -hmm. And I got in touch with him via social media and said, hey, I'm in Idaho. And he's like, great, let's have dinner. I said, well, I'm gonna, we're driving across, but we're stopping in Boise. He's like, I'll have dinner with you there. We looked at the map and we're like, that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. we just diverted our, we were in um, eastern, way eastern Idaho. And uh, we kind of just diverted up to, it didn't add much onto the trip and had lunch with him. And it was, it was very good to see him. He owns his own construction company oh, wow. in Ketchum, Idaho. You know, and he was explaining the crazy economics of that area, you know. I feel like Idaho is a, an area similar to Montana. Montana is like booming, especially like Big Sky and Bozeman and those areas. But Idaho is like a hidden gem. I feel like a lot of people will be moving there. They already are. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we saw out West was the number of help wanted signs and reduced hours. And we initially thought it was maybe because of COVID, but it really was due to a lack of base level employees, you know, um, service employees. They, uh, I was speaking to a guy that owned a, a shop there and he said, oh, people want to work. You just can't afford to live out here. Yeah. You know, when they joke in Jackson Hole that the billionaires are pushing out the millionaires. Yeah. Well, where do the people who work in the stores live? Right. Um, they live in Driggs, which is in Idaho over the gap. So you got to go up and over the mountain. And in the, we, we had an, an Airbnb in Driggs. It was a wonderful little town. But every morning, we would see the cars heading east, yeah. lines of cars heading east. And they're all going to, you know, go to the resort areas. Um, but there just isn't any place to live. You can't afford to live. So did you guys drive? Did you do a cross-country trip or did you fly? We flew uh, into Bozeman. Nice. And uh, had a really great first day just walking around Bozeman. Bozeman's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Very interesting town. And you know, you're in the heart of downtown. Most of the houses are like the bungalows that I live in over in Lauraville. There isn't a lot of big stately homes. No. They're being turned into big stately homes because right. they're worth so much money now. People are adding, you know, either knocking them down and putting up something bigger or adding floors and going up and up and sideways with them. My, my mom's from Boulder, Colorado, and I felt like she always talks about Boulder back in the day before it kind of just got huge and everyone started moving there. But I felt like when I was in Bozeman this past summer, Bozeman was like what Boulder used to be like. Maybe it's like this very charming and outdoorsy um, uh, town with a strip mall and you know, a lot going on, but it's but it's going to be booming soon. There's going to be so many people there. Yeah, I think because it's a university town, um, it already sort of is booming in the fact that, you know, you walk down the main street 
and you think you're in a northeast, yeah, you yeah. know, college yeah. town because it is a college town. Um, you know, the number of coffee shops and independent bookstores and things that you know you don't associate with a west, you know, the, something out west, right? Um, so it was it was it was really fun, and uh, we did that. We did San Diego. Oh yeah, it was fun. We just spent a week in San Diego. It's it's great there, isn't it? La, yeah, La Jolla. It was it was beautiful. Um, and what month were you there? March. I uh, not sorry. Uh, August, September, October. October. So, That's perfect. Yeah. yeah, it was. Oh, the weather was gorgeous, and we went to Palm Spring. Or um, yeah, Palm Springs. Palm Springs out in the desert. Um, and again, it's one of those things that as a teacher, and Kenneth being married to a teacher, you know, the places we're going are places we never could go because mm -hmm. June, July, and August, who wants to go out in the middle of the desert? Right, right. <laughs> it was perfect weather, but you're talking to people, oh, yeah, it's always, you know, 113 every day. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. no, no, thank you. Did you, uh, did you get to Joshua Tree when you were in Palm Springs? We did. We went out to Joshua Tree. It was really interesting. I uh, just, while we were checking into the hotel in Palm Springs, I looked at a magazine, and there was a picture of Lucinda Williams, who's an artist I really like. Um, and turns out she was playing some club in the middle of the desert. Wow. That was out by, actually out by Joshua Tree. Um, so I went out there. I, I got a ticket. Kenneth's like, just go. So I got a <laughs> ticket. And went out there, and it was high 40s because it's high desert. Yeah. You know, because I drove out, and then suddenly you make a left, and you go up this mountain, and there's this little, you know, Pap and, and, and Mary's bar. It actually used to be a Wild West town. And then they had this idea of doing live music, and it's you know like Paul McCartney played there. Oh wow! You know, and there were three hundred people. They only allowed three hundred people in. You know, big names like to play there, um, and it was a great venue. But I was dressed for Palm Springs. Yeah, you know, yeah. I had it gets freezing. I had shorts, hiking boots, um, a flannel shirt, and a t-shirt, <laughs> and, and that was it. And some very nice uh, women from Los Angeles who looked at me like I was insane, were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I'm, I'm from Baltimore. You know? And she's like, one of them put her, like one of those fluffy wool hats on my head and said, here, another one gave me a pair of gloves. And I was probably from maybe a little farther than we are away from her. I was, you know, she was like right standing at the edge of the stage. It was, stage was probably about as high as this table. It was, it was a great night. Mm. Um, so I got to see some really good music. That usually doesn't happen. Usually you go somewhere and they were there last week or they'll be there the week after you leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long was your trip? It sounds like you've, you hit a lot of different spots out West. Yeah. We did two separate trips and they were, I think two weeks, the first one and 10 days, the second. Nice. So nice. spent some good time. Yellow, um, Yellowstone. I've never been there, but that's one place I want to get to. I want to get to Glacier National Park too. We we touched on Yellowstone. Yeah. You know, you can't like I think Grand Teton you can kind of do in a day. You know, you can drive around it. Don't get me wrong, if you are hiking it, you could stay there and do more and more and more, but you kind of see it all in one drive mm -hmm. all day. But Yellowstone's just too massive. You know, you pick a couple of the key spots. You can right. see Old Faithful, and we saw the Prismatic Pool, and you know, and drove a lot that day. It was it was fun. It was definitely uh, worth the trip. Yeah. Um, we awesome. just got back from LA a couple weeks ago. We went out to LA for a week, nice. and we got out there. It turned the weather in LA was like seventy two, and it was twenty here. 
you know, so we did yeah. it. We did it mostly just for the a getaway in the winter. Yeah. Well, that was like watching the Super Bowl. It was like they're all, you know, dancing around in 80 degree weather. Mm. It was just in the 70s. It was perfect. My favorite weather. Yeah. And uh, it's yeah. hysterical. The native Angelinos are like wearing puffy coats and scarves and going, <laughs> oh, my God, it's so cold. And we're like, I'm in shorts and a T-shirt. Going, like, this is great. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a great great trip that's awesome well it sounds like retirement has uh, been treating you well so far you've got you've got some good travels in oh yeah we're i'm leaving in a couple of weeks we're going to europe um visit friends kenneth's from scotland and so we're going to visit his old friends and you know as he says it's one thing when you choose not to go home it's much different when you're not allowed to you can't go home so mm -hmm. we're going to do the netherlands and spain for fun and then we're going to go i mean scotland will be fun that's the second trip we'll go to uh visit family and friends in, in scotland as well sounds great all of my uh all of my travel plans for this year and last year really have gotten shut down i was supposed to go to the netherlands over the winter break and go to amsterdam mm -hmm. and debt my friend lives over in denmark um so i was going to check that out but that all got shut down because covid yep in fact we were just getting ready to cancel our plans and we were talking kenneth's oldest friend from high school kind of middle school really lives in the Netherlands. And Kenneth's like, yeah, we're going to have to cancel because they're 10 day quarantine. He's like, no, no, no. They just announced it. It's going to hit the, the, they're changing it. Yeah. Tomorrow. They just opened up completely. Um, you have to have proof of vaccination and a negative piece, you know, a negative test to, yeah. to get in. Um, so, you know, we're going, we're going over that as far as what they require, because it looks like they want your original like you have to bring your original paper and i usually don't travel with mine i usually have it i've got scanned documents on my phone right but if they want if they want us to bring them we'll bring them yeah the, the original little piece of paper that it's great it's crazy that that thing yeah but, but, yeah um great well it sounds like you're doing pretty well and uh things are things are moving up after the covid covid was probably you know, a little strange to be on retirement when you couldn't really do too much then. It was sort of opening up, you know, that's why we did our travel in 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 the States because it was fairly open, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Technically, Kenneth and I retired on the same day. Nice. So, because um, he, yeah, but he actually worked until his last day. I was just like, oh, wait a minute. I think I'm officially done today. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was just, first it was just relaxing. And, you know, we had... Um, condensed we sold a we had a place out in frederick and we sold that and decided that we were going to stay in baltimore which again was a decision that covid helped bring into focus you know when we retired where were we going to settle mm -hmm. you know the little house that i bought years ago that kenneth moved into and made a home in baltimore or the house the cabin in the woods with the acreage and it was during covid when we realized that you can't walk anywhere you're yeah. in the middle of the woods. Right. You know, we can walk to the Safeway. We can walk to Coco's. We can walk to Maggie's Farm and Red Canoe and Zeke's Coffee. And, you know, and when we do it, we see people who wave. Because during COVID, people in our neighborhood got really friendly from a distance, you know. Yep. You'd walk down the street and if you saw somebody there, were waving and, you know, commenting on the weather or whatever. Because, yeah. you know, we all felt a sense of community that, you know, normally you were just sort of so used to it. You might walk past that person and not say hello. Yeah, yeah. That was the best part, I think, is just going outside and everyone's freaking out when they see people. Um, 
So tell, tell me a little bit about like when you first started your career here at Gilman, um, like how you heard about Gilman, how you got here. Let's maybe backtrack a bit and, sure, and no start problem. started the, the wow. true story. Set the way back machine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it was interesting because I kind of backed into teaching. I was initially, I worked first and then I went back to college. I did a year at accounting college and had no direction. So I uh, became an apprentice tool and die maker, and, which is a precision machinist. And was doing that. There was an economic slowdown. My boss said, I got to lay you off. Um, there's another apprentice and I pay him less than I pay you. And we're really slow, but I'll hire you back. You know, don't, don't worry about it. You know, as soon as the economy picks back up. And I was taking a course at Montclair State College and was it called industrial studies, but there was a wood shop and a metal shop. But they also taught the educational program, technology, not technology, it was industrial arts education. And I really liked the professors and I liked the program and I was doing well and I just stayed with it. It was interesting because I put myself through school and I went from making good money to just whatever Pell Grants I could scrape up and student loans and lots of side hustle jobs. Um, I had some interesting, fun jobs back then and I made it through. And then I got to the end of my first full year and I needed some place to live. Yeah. <laughs> and because uh, I had to give up my apartment because I couldn't afford it anymore. And one of my professors suggested a summer camp up in Massachusetts. And he said, you live for free. You don't really drink. So you'll take most of your money home. You know, you just don't spend it. Yeah. And that's what I did. I did that for four years of college. And I was working with kids. So... That was fun. What was the what was the camp? It's called Camp Taconic. It's in Hinsdale, Massachusetts. It's a mostly Jewish community um, from Long Island, sort of that. There's a, a New York City, and then it migrated to Long Island tradition of sending your kid away for a couple weeks, mm -hmm. you know, six seven weeks in the summer to get him out of the city where it's hot and dirty and um, and up into this beautiful countryside. Um, and what, what kind of camp was it? What were they doing up there? It was a sleepaway camp, co-ed. It had everything. It had sports, but it wasn't uh, a com super competitive sports camp. They had a great theater program. They had outdoor stuff. It was really sort of a general fun camp. And they had little kids up to teenagers. Hmm. Um, and I actually worked with the littlest ones for, the, for a while I was there, which I think Andre Jones described as herding kittens. But... It's really what it was. Um, and it was fun. And, and that sort of made me think about teaching. And, of course, the advice I got was don't do it. You know, seriously sat down by people saying, like, you're talking about teaching. Don't do it. It's a dead-end job. You're never going to make any money. Um, you know, you're never going to get any respect. Don't do it. But I was double majoring. I had the industrial studies degree and the industrial arts education degree at the time it was called. I had all the courses covered and I got down to the end and I ran out of money. I mean, I just ran out of money and I decided to go with the teaching. I don't know. I don't remember really what spurred it. And then right after that, I realized I was going to take a semester off to make some money because I couldn't afford to student teach because I couldn't work and go to and student teach. And the school got a call from a, a school district 
that needed a teacher desperately. They were going to close the school at the end of the year and condense a district, and their teacher had left. So they needed someone just to fill the space. And I got emergency certification. Yeah. And I, that was my student teaching. Certification um, in a hurry. Yeah. I got, I got a state certificate saying that I was certified to teach this class. And, you know, my teacher training was the principal handed me a set of keys, said, the wood's out there in that garage. This is the shop. Try to keep them out of the halls. See you in June. And he walked down to his office and just would sit at his desk and stare at the wall because I don't think he had a job at the end of this. I think he was retiring. And I just self-taught, you know, like just got dropped in there with middle schoolers, which is I did not want to teach middle school. Last thing I wanted was to be a middle school teacher. I wanted to teach high school. But I had middle schoolers. And by the end of it, I just kind of fell in love with the goofiness. Yeah. Hmm. So that finished up. I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to about their in my first couple of years of teaching, doing this Penn Fellowship program where I was very like handheld, eased into the classroom. And I, Brian Ledyard was my mentor and I followed him around and I borrowed his curriculum. And it was very step-by-step process. I wasn't, th- I would definitely wasn't thrown into a classroom right away. But I feel like a lot of people I've talked to about their teaching careers are like, I never had a Penn Fellowship kind of deal like this. Like I was thrown into the classroom, given a book, and said, here, go ahead, <laughs> get the job done. Yeah, that, um, I mean, I, I honestly remember, as I'm not exaggerating, calling my mother, going, mom, make me go to school, because my mother never, never let me, and I had to be bleeding from the eyes to be allowed to stay home. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she's like, all right, you know, you know you gotta do it, get up, go to, you know, she just like sort of nagged me out the door, because it was, it was hard, it was very hard, the kids are kids, you know, the same thing here. Um, but it was wonderful and I really did enjoy it. And then I finished up and got a job. Um, well, I was working cause I needed to make money so I could afford some place to live. Got a job in Glen Ridge, um, at teaching their program. And it was in the middle school, but it was middle school and high school. And there was a kid named Danny. Danny was a kind of a skate punky kid very early on in the skater thing. And I was, I had a motorcycle at the time and I was riding home late on like a Thursday night because I could do that back then. And there's a kid skating on the front steps of the school. And I pull over and it's Danny. I'm like, Danny, what are you doing out? It's two o'clock in the morning. And he's like, oh, you know, my parents are in Aruba. And I'm like, they're in Aruba? Like, yeah, well, I got my own wing. He lived in a mansion, an actual mansion. Picture one of the big houses here in Roland Park, but on like two acres, you know, with a lot of property. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, somebody staying in the house, but they don't, you know, they don't care. So that was really an interesting introduction. So Danny was an interesting kid, um, walked up to me one day and uh, I was wearing a, a like an overcoat in the winter and he put a Metallica Master of Puppets pin on my lapel. He goes, that way people know you're cool. Like, Thank you, Danny. <laughs> but, um, Glenridge also has sort of a dark history. If you go back, there was a, uh, they had a very successful athletic program and it was powered by some very powerful parents and they sort of ran the school and these kids went off on a really bad tangent. They lured a girl who was learning disabled into a basement 
and some bad things happened. And it was getting covered up, hmm. you know, because one of the boys, his father was a detective. And in Jersey, every little town has their own fire department, their own police department. And it's a self-contained unit. Um, it just wasn't good. And Danny felt like things weren't happening. Um, and how old was Danny? Old? Danny was probably 16, 17. Okay. He was a high schooler. And he called the local radio station or TV station and said, you know, this girl happened and, did it, and nothing's happening about it. And the first day there was one local news truck in front of the school. The next day, the street was lined with all the major network news stations. And it tore the community apart as far as, you know, why should these boys' lives be ruined for this, you know, she, you know, she wanted it. It was really bad, mm. really bad news. And there was a, I think the book was called Our Boys, and there might have even been a TV show about it. But that was just crazy. Like I was in the middle of all that. And was that, I, your, that was your first year teaching. Oh, wow. Um, so that ended well. Uh, it was, like I said, very crazy. I was at Montclair State where I went to school, leaning against the wall, waiting to talk to uh, Dr. Browning, one of the advisors for the department. Great guy. And there's a an announcement. I'm like looking at it, waiting for him to talk to somebody else. And it's for this private school in Baltimore. And I'm reading about, yeah, right. Fairy tales can come true. They can, you know, I can't, this is, but I kind of kept it. It was just interesting. I, at summer camp, I had a friend who went to a private school in, um, in upstate New York, Fieldston School of Ethical Culture. And I had, you know, he was a young kid and uh, he was like my co, he was like a young counselor who was assigned to me and you know I ended up giving him a ride home because he you know didn't want to take the bus and I'd been to this school once to see a production he had worked on so I'd seen like oh private schools are different so called down and talked to this guy with this kind of strange high voice it was Ron Culbertson and he invited me down he said well why, why didn't you come on down why don't you come on down I'm like oh I've never been like, I, you know, South Jersey was the farthest I had ever driven. He said, take the train. I'm like, okay, so why not? Free trip. So I came down here and did a day at school. I figured I'd just talk to him and then I'd turn around and go home. No. I had the full day, met the faculty, you know, it was a, the buildings were laid out a little differently back then. And it was just kind of different. You could sense the energy was different, um, the way that, Students looked at the teachers and interacted with the teachers and vice versa was different. And I liked it enough that I was completely honest with Ron about my strengths and weaknesses and uh, went back to, to Jersey. And I had also had a, an offer at my old high school to teach there. What was your high school? Sorry. Kittatinny Regional High School in north, sort of northwest, up by the PA, um, New, uh, New York border. Got it. And uh, it was a great school, a really good school. And I'd gotten advice, I'd never go back and teach at your old school. So <laughs> um, that's why I was talking to Dr. Browning. And he's like, well, you know, you didn't do anything untold. Just, yeah, go ahead. God, the advice they don't give to Gilman alums, thank God, you know, come back and teach at your old school. Anyway, so I got offered the job, you know, and I just took it. I figured, well, I figured I would stay five years. That was always tell people I had a five-year plan. Mm -hmm. because my friend Vinny 
who I worked with at the tool and die shop was opening his own business. And he said, this is perfect. You go down and teach for five years and then I'll probably need more people and you can come back up and work for me. That's great. Make some money. You know, you actually make money. And, you know, part of the reason why I took the job also on, in the background was always the ticking time bomb. I mean, I was a closeted gay man in the, in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of getting, running away, you know, um, before it all exploded was also sort of in the background. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Baltimore, Baltimore's like mold. It grows on you. You know, you sit here long enough. It's, it's a, I really like Baltimore. Did you like it when you first moved here? Um, yeah, I did. I liked the fact that it was a small city, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'll never forget we drove. I was fall. My first came down, Ron let me stay at his house just while I was trying to find a place to live one day. But he was driving me to his house and we got stuck in old school beltway traffic, which was, you know, traffic slows down to 35. He said, I'm so sorry I took you that way. There was so much traffic. And I'm like, in Jersey, there are roads you just don't go on at four o'clock in the afternoon because it's a parking lot. Yeah. You know, just sit there. Yeah. Just sit there for a while and then move 10 feet and sit there for a while. You know, <laughs> um, so it was totally different. So would they have you teaching here in your first year uh, moving down to Gilman? It was interesting because I sort of semi took over the woodworking program and because I had a degree. I asked, I asked Ron, I said, well, you know, what's like I got the paperwork, um, which I just found the packet and I gave it to the archives because it was all typed up and mimeographed, you know, sort of old school at the end of the at the end of the summer, you'd get this thick envelope. Mm-hmm. And it had like what people were doing and all the stuff that gets in in the emails now. And I called Ron. And I said, um, where's my curriculum? You know, what am I going to be teaching? He goes, well, I don't know. What are you going to be teaching? You know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, I had to come up with a curriculum like that. <laughs> but you had already done that at your previous school a little bit. No, right? in or the no? state, they hand you a book. Like there's a state curriculum. Okay, so they had they had it outlined for you. Not that I actually followed it, yeah. but there was a curriculum. Um, I kind of did my, I looked at it and I said, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. I've got, you know, my skills lie here. And I just applied that here and it evolved rather rapidly. You know, I sort of um, probably started off with a curriculum in the middle. Like everything was shifted a little too early. You know, like the kids were picked up things a lot faster. You know, um, so we did all kinds of stuff and we were in the old building, which is the building is gone in the basement of the old language building. Hmm. Um, um, crazy space. So, and I taught high school, the high school class as well. Might rewind a little bit because I know you said that you had the internship where you were doing some word working and some industrial studies, uh, early on. Well, that was, that was a machining course, metalworking. Like, again, I didn't plan on being um, a woodworker. You know, my plan was to teach metal shop or auto mechanics. Gotcha. Um, Okay. You know, I liked cars and motorcycles. um, And I liked, I did mostly metalworking. I specialized in metalworking. We did metal casting and CNC. You know, I I was programming CNC on a a Bridgeport milling machine with paper punch tape uh, at Montclair. Um, One of my side... Hustles in school was uh, one of the professors raced go-karts and I made engine mounting plates for Yamaha 100cc 
go-kart engines that tilted the motor up a little bit so the cylinder had got more air. It was a hot item you could buy from a go-kart specialist company for like 150 bucks. So I just copied it, cast them out of metal, machined them, and sold them for like 50 because I wasn't paying for materials or supplies or power or anything mm -hmm. um, and sold a bunch of those, and, you know. So where did that interest start for you? When did you kind of get into cars, in, into, and, stuff? Into cars and metal? Oh, my God. And, well, um, when we moved, we moved a lot. But when we moved back to New Jersey, I was in ninth grade. I took uh, a metal working course with a man named Mr. Charles Horskin, who I didn't realize was a brand, relatively brand new teacher um, who was a machinist in the Marines, I think. Um, really great guy. And we did metal casting, and I really liked him. He was a, he was a mentor. Um, I, one of the reasons I'm teaching is I had in my senior year that sort of led me to teaching was in my senior year, I had an independent study because I'd taken all the metalworking courses they offered at Kittatinny. So they gave me an independent study. And I was in Mr. Horskin's office waiting for the guy who was teaching the middle school, who covered some of the middle school classes just so, to give him a break, who wasn't very good. And Mr. Horskin looked at me and said, hey, could you go out there and make sure he, he doesn't like kids don't get hurt or he doesn't break anything. And he goes, if I do it, he'll get angry. So I just went out and sort of started teach. Like I taught the kids how to do sand casting and stuff. Cause he didn't really know how to do it that well. Mm. So, you know, taught him how to use the, we used the uh, forge and we did metal casting. We did a bunch of little projects. So you were like senior leader in the classroom. Yeah, kind of like a senior leader with middle schoolers. Okay, so that led that 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 spurred your interest in teaching that, too. Yeah, I sort of went back to that, you know, when I finally went back to school. I, I mean, I have have had, will always have some learning disabilities. They didn't really know what they were back then, but now we do. Um, so I was like, he, he's really smart, but he doesn't do his work. You know, <laughs> that's because if he sits down and tries to write. Like after two or three minutes, like I just start to get the jitters and, you know, yeah. it's, it was just the way it was back then. Um, so anyway, so that was, you know, that was sort of the very start of it. Um, and then again, I did the machining thing because there was a program for um, tool and die makers, which are the people who make the machines that make the things that we use, you know, um, they stamp things out of metal or cut things out. And you produce in production, and we make the the actual device that sort of does the cutting, stamping, bending, um, and it's super precision machining. Oh. And it was it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, but again, you know, just the way the economy went and the way things went, you know, um, it just sort of everything sort of fell into place. That I went back to college, which was I never thought would happen. I took the CNC course because I, that that could apply to the tool and die making. So your first couple of years um, at Gilman, you were teaching middle school, some high school. Mm -hmm. The high and, school program, yep. And you had your own curriculum unfolding a bit. You were allowed to have the freedom to mm -hmm. implement your own yes. curriculum, which is nice. It's one of my favorite parts of Gilman is that you can kind of teach what you want for the most part. Not in, yeah. some, not in some curriculums, but the classes I teach, I can do that too. They give you a guideline and then you pull the things out of it that excite you and interest you. That's what I think is the beauty of Gilman. You, know, you have these teachers who they're teaching, say, American history, but from slightly different angles. Right. And it's some. And if the teacher's excited about it, the kids will be more excited about it. So you don't need to all be in lockstep. 
teaching this, you know, that you can have some slightly different views on things or just ways of doing things. What, um, if you can remember, but, but I guess like when, when you were a teacher here, what were kind of your ways of doing things in the woodworking room? What was some of your favorite, I guess, uh, tactics or, or curriculum methods that you used in the, in the classroom? Well, a lot of what I did, people don't quite understand is a lot of problem solving, you know? Um, so a kid will, a student would ask me a question, a young man would ask me a question and you would don't necessarily have to give them the answer. In fact, giving them the direct answer, you know, give, lead them on the path for them to discover. Um, and because there's no AP test to worry about, you know, you can, you have more time and more flexibility to lead them through thought process. Um, you know, I, taught guitar building for a number of years and kids would ask me, well, which is better this or that? And I'll say, yes. <laughs> and I go like, what do you mean? Like they're looking for this one answer. Well, yeah. with, you know, not quantifiable, but qualitative stuff. It's like, well, what do you like? I mean, there's, you know, you could argue you know, one pickup over another, but which is better? Well, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, you start asking questions. You just respond with leading questions, not just, you know. Yes or no. Not just yes or no. And that was fun to walk, make the kids think. Yeah. Um, watching them think and watching them go through it. Um, you know, and sometimes just being sort of right. But you can only learn certain things by experience. John Ball was building a bamboo frame bicycle carbon fiber bamboo free came. I want to build a carbon fiber bamboo frame, bicycle frame. And he showed me online stuff. I was like, great, awesome. So he orders all the parts. He's ordering the bamboo, the special black bamboo. It's like, well, order enough for two frames. He's like, no, no, I got enough. There's enough and I got one extra piece. I'm like, you might want to order enough for two frames. <laughs> no, 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 okay. And he was working on it. He was like, ah, oh, it doesn't work. And he didn't have enough bamboo to like, make the frame like the you know he was just like uh and i'm like well that's how you learn you know why did i know to say order enough for two frames because i've tried things for the first time and nothing ever works yeah. right goes all the way from start to finish that is the rarest thing in the world to start something brand new that you've never done before and have it go from beginning to end with no problems no mess ups you know it, you're learning mm -hmm. so um so he, we, we had a good laugh about that when he had to order more bamboo. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things to do when I was doing some of the tours for admissions a couple of years ago, um, in the fall, I think, was to take the prospective students down to the woodworking studio because they'd always get excited. Even if they were into that or knew they were into woodworking or not, you'd have the guitars there. You'd be always working on something so fascinating and I feel like that's a great um, like selling point for Gilman is that we have this we have this entire studio for students just to work on special projects and have, well, have and it's tactile yeah, yeah and when you get somebody you know and again this notion of Gilman understands boys and young men you're spending all this time poking one part of the brain this you know cerebral part of the brain. It, it does them so much good to go down into the shop and pick something up and have something tactile and have to do the problem solving and, you know, look at it, you know, and interact with it. It sort of pokes a different part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that, I think, is really magical, you know. And I was talking to Michael Kutzer. He's a, a graduate. And um, 
you know, it sort of helped drive. I mean, he was a Gilman, he was a Gilman ES Gilman guy. You know, I think he was center for the football team. Um, he was, you know, super smart AP kid, but took woodshop as much as he could. He loved it. Well, he's teaching robotics at the U.S. Naval Academy now. And he likes it because it has that hands-on element and he makes things and he's doing things and he's teasing. And he's actually now teaching, which is really great. I just saw him the other day, went up and, and saw him. He's in town. Um, but, you know, I, was, I went to go see him when he worked at the uh, Applied Physics Lab at Hopkins. He invited me down and we were there. And I walked in and there was a, a whiteboard like you have in here. And there's a huge, long mathematical formula. And he's showing me all the stuff. I was like, you know, Mike, he didn't need to like write some mathematical formula to try to impress me. And he's like, no. And he's like, so earnest. That's what I loved about Michael. I love about Michael so much. He's such an earnest man. And he's like, no. And he's explaining to me how these, you know, using these formulas, it saves him time because he can prove or disprove a theory through math instead of having to try to build it. And then he stopped and realized I was kind of you know, tugging on his leash. And he was like, oh, Mr. Howard. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like let me show you something and we're he's leading me through the building and like oh i can't take you this way there's a guy with you know machine guns standing there like oh this is the restricted section he had to take me like all the way around you know oh, wow. um he was building robots for well, all sorts of things i mean and it was really neat i mean he did stuff like he was showing me this armature he had built he would test theories so he was building an armature for an underwater drone that could move backwards and not make noise. Now, why would you want wow. your underwater drone to not make noise when it when you have to back up? But he what he had done is he had gone somewhere and studied a certain eel that could swim backwards. Wow, that's fascinating. And they, they studied the motion of it and they built this armature to prove you could build a mechanical armature that could do it. So potentially it could be applied to some sort of underwater. That's really interesting. I'd love I'd love to know how that how that works and he you know he would get these sort of grants i guess i guess he would write you know he'd do all the research do all the data and hand it in yeah and he said that was great and then he likes the teaching thing the robotics down at the but again that's like a guy who you know having that wood shop experience was key you know because it excited him and got him into it and passionate about mm -hmm. it yeah and but the, the great thing about it was he also had the gilman education you know, to get his doctorate in engineering, I think. Um, you know, right? He, you know, he. It, it, it's not just one thing. You you can follow passions, things that interest you, whether it's art or you know, making things or um, doing stuff with cameras and broadcast and and podcasting. And it's 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 such a, a great environment for a young man to grow up. And I mean, Gilman does that so well. It, it understands the young men and it offers them, you know, not endless, well, as close to endless possibilities you can get, I think, in a, in a, you know, in a school. Yeah. I mean, if you have an interest, you should be able to find it at Gilman. There's so many different options. You've got mm -hmm. photography, you've got Carl Connolly in the art studio, you've got wood woodworking, podcasting, clubs. There's really a, everything that you could ask for. Oh, Yeah. Uh, and and anyone who you know, I always feel sorry for the guys if there are guys who try to sneak through here without like getting engaged, you know, just like I'm going to get my education and sneak out. Like, what's the point? You know? Yeah, I always tell kids that like, look, you practically live here anyway. You know, like when I went to high school, I was on the couch, or I was actually most of the time I was out on my dirt bike riding around the fields, 
I was home by three o'clock, you know, homework. What's that? You know, um, I just would go riding. Um, you're here so much anyway, you might as well put a little bit extra in and dive in to whatever it is that interests you, the theater, I'm pointing up to the theater because yeah. we're in the building. Um, you know, it's such an amazing program and opportunity. And, you know, um, you can learn so much about yourself and you just grow so much more. Yeah, I think so. And I think another important piece of Gilman is to try to meet as many people here as you can while you're here. Um, I think about like my high school, but really college experience, where it was a little bit more similar, I guess, to like Gilman's schedule and, and the education, uh, like the more people you can meet and become close with, or at least connect with, you, you're going to have these relationships for the rest of your life. So I try to, I try to tell some of my students that like try to meet some people and sit down at lunch with some different people. And in addition, all the yeah. clubs and activities that you can get involved with. Well, that's why it's those extra things that really make it. Uh, because that's when you're going to meet someone you wouldn't think to talk to in a different environment, you know, whether it's on a team, you know, somebody who you might think you might, you'd say somebody like Mike Cutzer. Yeah, Mike Cutzer is huge, right? You think, oh, he must just be a dumb jock. And then you find out he's just like wonderfully sensitive, incredibly intelligent person, you know, who totally blows your expectations out of the water. And then hopefully they'll see that Maybe I shouldn't judge everyone by just sort of the surface appearance. Yeah. I mean, um, I always used to tell people that's one of the things I liked sort of about the dress code was that in my school, people self-identified by how they dressed. But then the flip side of that was people just assumed a whole lot about you by the way you dressed. Yeah. You know, by that, oh, well, you know, like I got war i was sort of grunge before grunge because it was you know auto parts t-shirts and flannel shirts and greasy jeans or you know torn up jeans and work boots because i was always under a car and i remember somebody saying to me like they were stunned to learn that i loved to read and that i had read all the tolkien and i read stephen king and they saw me in the library you know with the it was a Stephen King book. She said, I didn't know you. She almost said, I think she said, I didn't know you could read. <laughs> because she, and then she said, well, I just assumed. You know, I just, I just thought because, you know, you're like a metal shop guy and you're. Yeah. You know, Especially so. in high school, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. A lot of assumptions about, a lot of p placing people in boxes. And I guess that's everywhere, but. Yeah. And, but I think it's more so, I always used to explain it this way to people. Like, okay, so you get a lower school or a little kid. Um, they're not very aware of self. You know, so they can be, they can stand up in front of a room full of people with, you know, one finger up their nose and their zipper down and they don't, they don't notice that. <laughs> and then you get to middle school, especially late middle school, and you realize that other people might be looking at you. And then you think everyone's looking at you all the time. So you're looking at everybody else. And does that create? And then in high school, it evens out, but you're still, you're working at this idea of what is social. Right. You know, my place in, in the social network. In the social fabric is a better word, I guess I'd say. Self-awareness. Self, it's that self-awareness thing really blossoms. Uh, and again, that was just one of the things I thought when I came down here, like, oh, like this dress code thing isn't really, like it's, an, it's a leveling thing. You know, you just, you can't see somebody across. I mean, it has to be super minute details, mm -hmm. you know, because if everyone's, you know, if everyone's in a shirt and a tie or a, a polo shirt, you know, you can't see somebody from across a room and then immediately say, oh, that's a jock. Yeah, that's very true. You have to know them a little bit. Right. 
And then after that, that then your chances of actually getting to know them a little bit more increase because yeah. you're not doing it from literally across a quad or, you know, across the cafeteria. Yeah. 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 We're having some issues with the dress code right now with the hoodies and the, I guess that's always the case, but, yeah. but yeah, I think but, COVID because they, they we, we lessened the dress code a little bit for COVID. You didn't mm-hmm. really have to wear a tie, I think for a couple yeah, months or the year. So that's, uh, it's coming back a bit, they'll, but yeah, they'll do what they, they'll do what they do. I mean, things evolve, you know, things evolve as they go along. So, um, but it just, it was just an interesting thing that I noticed. Yeah. You know, it was one of the reasons why I thought it wasn't really a bad thing. Right. You know, um, so in your, in your time at Gilman, uh, teaching, did you ever feel like you wanted to step away and do something else? Or once you were here, you really, uh, were cemented for a while. Oh, I, I, a little, a lot of it had to do with, you know, um, again, being a closeted gay man for a while, being here, wondering if I should be here, you know, um, knowing what some people would think of me, that whole, you know, um, and also not being from Gilman, not being from Baltimore, not being an ex-football player or going to an Ivy League school or something sort of felt way on the outside. Um, so, you know, there were some things I looked at once or twice, you know, actually did get one job offer, um, that I didn't take, but it was really more because I was just in, not in a great place again, having to do with the sexuality because I was right on the cusp of coming out and I got offered a job at a recording studio. Um, and you know, the money was better than what I was making. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't feel like I could, was holding it together. And I figured, you know, I'd have, at least I have the summer off to, you know, figure out what I was going to do um, and put it off. So. Did they, um, did the part about like sexuality, did that change at a certain point over your career? Just like oh, as culturally in America, huge. was there like a, like a, a, a tangible point? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it happened much faster than anyone thought it would. You know, when I first worked here, I was told very seriously, and this was, you know, some, it came up on a, you know, not something I had brought up, but somebody said, oh, there are no gay students at Gilman. None of our boys are gay. Some of them turned gay in college, but none of them are, you know I mean? And serious, like not, that wasn't an ironic statement. That was a factual statement in this person's mind. And then, you know, it started happening like slowly eroding. Like, so first you'd hear about the kid who came out when he went to college. And then you'd hear about the kid who, once he got accepted to college, told his best friends, swore them to secrecy, and you found out about it when the summer hit. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, somebody, you know, Scott McCaw, he comes out and decides to bring his boyfriend to prom, which was insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember, and I'm, you know, I was actually just coming out myself and like totally seeing people's reaction that pushed me back into the closet a little bit, mm-hmm. seeing some of the visceral reactions some people had to it. The administration, I always say, and I, I might not be right, but it seemed like they froze like a deer in the headlights. So they didn't say no to Scott. So Scott did bring his date to the prom. Mm. And um, some people thought that was the worst thing in the world. I had a, a teacher sort of say that he ruined my prom, um, when an alum who had come back. But, you know, nothing happened. I mean, nobody beat anybody up. They just kind of stayed in the corner. 
you know, yeah. they didn't, you know, but it was kind of massive. But then it was sort of immediately like, no, okay, that's an aberration. Yeah, it's not right. happening. Right. But, um, you know, and then society was changing and the pressure was there. Um, I had come out and uh, it was a weird time for me because I was out to the faculty, but not the kids. I was kind of told not to do that in the beginning. Um, strongly advised, shall I say. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it just got to be the pressure buildup for me was getting uncomfortable. And uh, we were in homeroom with Matt Tully and Chris um, Downs. And Matt was, we were talking to the kids about responsibility. They hadn't done their cleanup. I'm talking about responsibility. And, you know, Matt's going like, you know, we don't, the things we don't want to do, you know, I don't want to pick grade papers, but I have to, I've got a responsibility to get this work done, you know, and he went to Mr. Downs, you know, his, his wife, you know, he, he and his family, he has to work. He wouldn't want to be, he'd rather be home, but Mr. Howard, well, he has responsibility too. And he like hiccuped. He didn't know what to say. Now he had met Kenneth. He was totally fine with it, but he didn't know the status. There was that sort of uncomfortableness. Mm -hmm. Well, he has responsibility too. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and then I was sitting in the cafeteria, the new cafeteria. It was brand new at the time. And I'm watching two middle school boys interact. And it was like, love is in the air. I mean, they were just cr crushing on each other. You could see it. And yeah. I went up to their advisor, Neil Gaby, and he's like, I mean, Neil, did you? He's like, I know. He goes, I don't know what to do. Like, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? He was sort of going back and forth. And I had always thought and had said, I'd actually gotten yelled at once by an administrator when I was talking about coming out. Um, but I said, you know, our silence is really loud. It says something. And I also realized that some kids knew I was gay because I work with their parents. <laughs> They'd met Kenneth. Yeah. At a faculty thing. I mean, you know, the, the faculty kids live in this parallel world. And so I did it. I, I did an assembly because um, I knew there were a bunch of seventh and eighth graders who were dealing with their sexuality. And uh, I figured, you know, might as well just put it out there. So I, I, I developed what I thought was a really good middle school appropriate assembly mm -hmm. on coming out. It was really more about what it meant to be in the closet and sort of how my life went from, you know, when I realized I was, had that aha moment, self-identified. Um, I was 14, 15 years old. I was living with my uncle. He was an auto mechanic. I wanted to be an auto mechanic. I had this idea that that's what I was going to be. I had this clear vision that I would, you know, follow my uncle and I'd be an auto mechanic and I'd have a cool car and I'd live in, you know. And in that moment, when I realized while listening to a David Bowie song that Oh man, I'm gay. Except for those weren't the words I used. Um, that all just disappeared. My future immediately vaporized because uh -huh. I knew what other mechanics thought of gay people. The AIDS crisis was happening, you know? So there goes the idea of having a family, of living in town, of doing all the things I thought I was going to do. But life keeps moving, you know? You don't just stop. But so it just sort of had this like sort of stumbled along for the next bunch of years, um, sort of trying to build a new future. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my message to him that, you know, I have all the things, you know, I have, a, you know, I've got Kenneth, you know, which is like the missing piece. Right. You know, I had, I had a career and I built all this stuff, but I needed that other piece. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I think that's so important for the middle school and high school students to see like 
that that that's okay you know that that and it's funny because from a even, faculty member even right now just talking about it it's like you know it, it was huge doing that yeah. um that was what was very interesting was you know i did not know what kind of reaction it was funny ken it's like you do have like another assembly you can do because he couldn't believe me i can't believe you're going to do this i'm like no i'm going to do it then i got to go like what am i doing oh my god what am i doing like this is this is yeah. insane yeah and it finished and the kids immediately jumped to their feet and I got a standing ovation. I was like, just that was just draw dropping me. I thought there'd be like maybe awkward silence, you know, after I finished the assembly. But because it was you could hear a pin drop when I was talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was it was pretty, pretty intense. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage for sure. I had a friend who I actually had on the podcast. He was on my lacrosse team in college and I had graduated, but he was a senior in college, and he came out in front of the entire team his senior year. Um, and he wrote a whole article in Inside Lacrosse magazine about that experience. And we did a podcast, and I was talking to him a little bit about that. But uh, he got such a like you know incredible welcome from the team. There's a video of it, and um, you know I'm getting excited about that, and just you know showing him that he's accepted and that mm-hmm. nothing changes after that. You know, it's just. He's one of my really good friends. He's a teacher too. Um, so yeah, it's a, that's a cool memory and cool moment for you. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was interesting. The administration, a little less enthusiastic about it, but cause I didn't tell anybody, I didn't tell anybody in the administration cause, and that was, ended up being a bit of a sticking point, but I kind of, my feeling was, you know, if, uh, if Andre Jones wanted to talk about the fact that his, you know, his wife is white and he's black and their child is mixed race, would he need to ask permission? Mm-hmm. And some people don't like that. Right. So, right. I, and, and my, my content was solid. Like I went over my presentation and I was like, no, this is really very appropriate for middle school. Very valuable. You know, well, it's just, it's just sort of, yeah, it's like, it's like a real story and sort of explaining sort of again the process that one went through and it's so interesting because i could give that assembly now to kids that are out you know because they're it's a different world the world changed so rapidly on that yeah um it's wild to even think about what that was like back mm -hmm. a couple decades yeah oh yeah kids getting kicked out you know beaten up and kicked out of their homes was fairly common you know yeah um kids getting dropped off at a bus stop saying don't come back you know yeah wow uh, what are some other ways that I guess Gilman has changed? Do you think from your time when you first started here until when you retired? Like, what what would you say are major points of change that have occurred over the over that span of time? Well, Gilman is a reflector. Although people don't, I don't know if people believe it. I do. I believe it's a reflector of sort of the world, but it's through a lens. Um, through us, I always used to say it's like, you know, especially when I was here with with Culbertson, you know, it's like Ron would spin this soap bubble around the middle school and you'd walk through it, but it was a soap bubble. It could get burst. You know, it wasn't a wall. Um, but as society has changed and gone through rapid changes, again, the things about sexuality, that's a really easy one, you know, because it was reflecting what was going on in society. You know, mm-hmm. these were, again, these were people, I, the way societally gay people were kept down was you you were made to be invisible so um i was my i was working with a band they were playing a big show in new york city for a grammy showcase thing 
and we had the Saturday off. And I went to Christopher Street in New York City, and it had completely changed. I mean, I'd been on that area when I was still closeted. It was like scary to be there because you saw all these out gay people. But the neighborhood had changed. And I asked somebody, um, and this person said to me, oh, honey, you know, you couldn't have a Christopher Street address and work it on Wall Street, but now you can. Yeah. And they're buying up all the houses. That's why. So, you know, it's like the idea of baby strollers on Christopher Street, you know, that was like unheard of because career-wise, if you had a Christopher Street address, you couldn't work at Goldman Sachs. You know, they might, if you were a young man, your age, just starting out your career, what would they assume? Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the way it worked. You could, we would take away your livelihood, you know, um, we, you need to be invisible. Or do you have to be someone you're, you're not? Or be someone you're not, you know, um, and people were moved, you know, people would move to the, you know, the get the gay cities, you know, the cities with big populations and that's where they would sort of become themselves. But again, your choices of what you did was limited. So if you were going to work at you know, Goldman Sachs in New York City, you would go to Christopher Street, but you couldn't live there. Yeah. Um, but that all changed. And so, for example, the reason it was so it's been easier for us is the fact that you knew your friend. It wasn't like he was some kid that walked in and said, hey, I'm the new you know, forward for your lacrosse team. You don't know me, but I'm gay. Right. You might have had a different reaction. Yeah. Yeah. But we were, we've already been there. We were, we've always been around you. Now we're just allowed to be our true selves. And that's, you know, wonderful. And you guys, uh, you know, we've gotten support. You know, we have a lot more allies than we thought we had because society told us, no, people are not going to accept you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one way. What was it like in Baltimore for you just living in this city? You talked about New York City, but Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore is a wonderfully weird little city. Um, you know, I sort of straddled a lot of different lines. I mean, there were times I would finish a show at the 8x10 and stop, you know, in at the hippo at the very end of the night, you know, just to, just to walk through it, you know. Um, so it was like, but I could do that because they're relatively close to each other, or like the old, especially the old auto bar, which was down by the courthouse on Davis Street, you know, mm -hmm. finish the show there, throw all my stuff in my car, and drive over, drive over, you know, catch the very last bit of music at the Hippo if I, you know, if I wanted to. And I would do that from time to time. Can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about the band and the music that you're involved in? Oh, God, I've been involved in a couple of bands here in Baltimore. Um, <laughs> You know, my longest association was actually, I didn't actually, I only played one gig in the band. I filled in bass one night, which was at a, it was a horrible show, but I got to do it. It was a band called the Almighty Senators, which was a, like a staple, you know, Baltimore rock band in the 80s, 90s, um, into the 2000s. And, uh, you know, my, I was, I played in a band called Big Yeah, which was wonderful. And we were just sort of launching and then everything kind of went sideways. The guy who was sort of the leader of the band, Barry, um, his ex-girlfriend, who was the mother of his children or child, um, moved to Portland. She had to move to Portland. And Barry just said, I got to go. He's like, you know, she's wonderful. She loves the kids, but she'll flake out and she won't have any support and I need to be there. Mm -hmm. So that ended that band. But um, 
you know, I just, I know a lot of people, which is really fun. You know, um, I was, I was at a, in Annapolis at a club and, you know, we finished up and I decided to stay over and my friend Warren and uh, his partner, we all decided to split a hotel room and Jimmy Davies, who was the uh, lead singer of the uh, band Jimmy's Chicken Shack, who was the band that probably the Baltimore band that made the closest to making it really, breaking it really big. And if anybody had a right to be sort of bitter about the music industry, it would be him. But Jimmy is the most positive guy. And we were talking about it and he was talking, he just started talking about how lucky we were to have been there. You know, we were there when Baltimore was this powerhouse of live music. You know, there were a lot of clubs. There was people were, you know, knew we just played. It was just amazing. Um, and, you know, I was, I got to be there for a little bit of it too, which was really great. And, and what was the band? Uh, Teachers for Sale is a band Teachers that, I was, for sales. that yeah, is yeah. on hiatus right now. We're, we're actually, you know, because Brian and, and Andrew, um, especially Brian being an administrator, with COVID, just the strain and stress of that, we just decided to take a break. Um, and then when things opened up a little bit, I personally chose not to try to book us anywhere because I know a lot of my friends are professional musicians. And when the gigs first started opening up, I figured, well, we'll just, I'll just leave it to them because they need the money. Yeah. <laughs> they don't step on a, any toes. I don't want to step on any toes. Exactly. Um, you know, but we've been talking about getting together again and starting to play. Actually, I'm hoping when I get the basement together, maybe we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. We'll get together and how start did, playing again. How'd you guys start that band? Oh my God. So, Brian Powell was lower school. I don't remember what he was teaching. And Andrew Holt um, were lower school teachers and they had an acoustic duo. And there was a recording studio in this space that I put together, which is another crazy story. But I recorded a little demo for them. And they did their acoustic duo thing. And I would see them around. We would chit chat. Years later, um, they wanted, they had been writing some originals and wanted to do some recording and I recorded them in my basement and I put some bass on some of the songs and they were like, you should join the band. Adam Herb was on percussion and, um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And we started playing out and we, we, we gigged out quite a bit. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was, it wasn't as easy though, as it was in the old days, <laughs> there's times you know, I would be out playing gigs and, you know, come rolling in really late. The The best one was we got a chance, this was long ago, to play the Wetlands in New York City, which is a big club. So we go up with the Almighty Senators and we play on one of the side stages and they're playing the main stage. And the deal was it was Thursday. I was like, look, CJ, the drummer, and Barry, the, the guitar player, I was like, once we're done with our set, we really got to kind of wrap it up and drive back to Baltimore because I have to teach tomorrow. At 8 a.m. Okay. okay, okay, sure. So we finish <laughs> up and I, got, I have this big, massive bass rig. So I'm like wrestling this thing off the stage. Where's CJ? Because he had borrowed somebody's drum kit. So his stuff came off. Like he borrowed a snare. He had a snare drum. That was it. I'm like, where's CJ? I'm like, I don't know. So by the time I find CJ, where's Barry? He, he's on stage with the Almighty Senators. Oh, no. So I will never forget driving to my apartment down on Keswick and I passed Jerry Thornberry 
who's on his way to Gilman. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Look at Jerry. And he looks at me like, like, why are you going in the wrong direction? And I went home, grabbed my guitars out of the car, brought them into the, the, my apartment, took a shower, got dressed, turned around, got in the car and got in time, got in school time for first period. Made it happen. And made it happen. It I love it. Ran on adrenaline all day long. I think my my heart would explode now if I did that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we were really careful about what night. I mean, even like playing Friday nights now was tough, you know, because you teach all day and you're like, if I don't get home and take a nap, I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. By, by, by the end of the week, it's yeah, it gets tough. You get it gets, tired. It gets tougher <laughs> as you get older. So I have a couple more questions sure. for you. One is, and I've, I've got class in a couple minutes, but... um. It's been awesome talking to you. Um, love these stories. Uh, what's the best concert you've ever been to before? Ooh, best concert. Um, long, long, long ago, I got tickets to see Neil Young. And I had four tickets. And Aaron Jensen and Stephen Hobbs, who were the two wonder kids from way back when, um, got the tickets. Or I got the tickets. And anyway, I ended up taking them. I had one extra ticket. And I took Bonnie Allen, Bonnie Caslow at the time. Um, she was like, she was the art teacher in the middle school. You know, she, oh, Neil Young, I like, you know, his acoustic music. Well, he was doing his Feedback is Back tour, playing like really heavy rock, you know, Neil Young rock. And um, because the Gulf War, the first Gulf War had started and he wrote this album in response to it and it had a lot of distortion and heavy. And it was at the old Capitol Center and Neil Young's tour was following Guns N' Roses. Mm. And everywhere Neil was going, he was setting the decibel record for every like venue he had been. He had made Maryland Sound International actually built him a custom PA that was phenomenal. It was really good quality sound. I mean, I've I've walked out of like local clubs if the sound's really bad, because you can tell it's like spiking your ear and like one, but this was just warm wave of sound, but it was so loud you couldn't communicate with the person next to you. You just got to watch the play. Uh, so that was an amazing show because we were in like the seventh row, you know, and it was just phenomenal, thunderous. You know, he would play two songs. Every song ended in feedback. And then he'd get a different, you know, he'd swap his guitar out for the other one. And they just nonstop. Bonnie's like, I thought I was having a heart attack because it was shaking my chest. That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. That was a really good big show. And then uh, small shows. Wow. I've been to so many amazing ones. Um, there was a crazy band or is it crazy band rodney henry who owns uh, dangerously delicious pies started off as a punk rocker uh, sort of a turbo billy rockabilly guy and he had this band called the glenmont popes and they were ferocious and they were playing the old auto bar on davis street which is tiny it's a tiny little pa wood paneled bar that used to be where the lawyers and judges would go to drink at lunch and after that sort of like they got frowned upon it sat idle and then somebody turned it into a rock club and i think on the first floor, I think the, the limit was supposed to be 50 people on the first floor and 55 on the second, but all 110 would pack into the first floor. <laughs> and I had dragged a real big, a real to real tape recorder to record the Pope's. And it was the, like the day before Thanksgiving and Rodney did this like insane show. I mean, it was just totally nuts. Everybody was just going crazy. It was like that energy of being this close to the band, you know, and they're yeah. just like playing right in your face. You and think, I'm holding on to gear, like my, my gear, 
as it's like getting as the building is sort of rocking back and forth. And that show ended with the sound guy turning off the PA and walking away because it was so late. He's like, Rodney, you got to stop. Okay, I'm just going to do one more. One, two, three, four, and take off. Um, and the guy was like, look, it's actually two o'clock in the morning. And he turned off the PA. <laughs> You've um, had some uh, some great seats at these shows, You like right up front. That, oh, that makes yeah. such a big difference, I, I, I think. I don't go to big shows anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at a Jumbotron, and that's really cool. But, like, the 930 Club is the biggest I want anymore. 930 Club's amazing. I love that place. Oh, and the sound is so good. And yeah. it's just such a great venue. Um, but, yeah, I like smaller clubs, and I like seeing bands, you know, before they make it big, you know, um, which is hard because I just don't, you know, now you, people aren't touring because of COVID. So I got to start looking for new bands to go. You ever heard of Kevin Morby, Hamilton Lifehauser? Yes. I saw Kevin Morby and Hamilton Lifehauser at 930 Club, and it was up there as one of the best, just because the sound quality is amazing, and I was right up front. And You can, yeah, it's that you have that, they're interacting with you in a way that you just, it's an, I don't want to say it's an act when they're on a big stage, but it's an act. Yeah. Um, and it's less so. You can, you can look in their eyes, yep. um, you know, is, is the best. I always would tell kids, like, go see bands. You know, when they're before they break, if there's somebody you're interested, go see them when they're playing the 930 Club, when they're playing at the Wrecker, any place, you know, yeah. any place that's small enough that you can actually see them without a screen. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. For sure. Uh, last question here. Uh, so one thing we do, I don't know if Cesare told you, but we um, usually ask for a book recommendation for, for someone. And you said you like to read a lot. Did you, do you, do you have any books that you have read recently or just in general that you really like that you would recommend for people? I was actually looking for it before I bring it and I couldn't find it because we condensed two houses into one smaller house, <laughs> into the one smaller house. But um, there was a really interesting book I read, and I used to, it went, it went out of print, so I would, every time I find one in a bookstore, I would buy it and give it to people. Um, but it's back in print now. It's called Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. It's a sci-fi book. And it was really interesting for two things. First, it was the first time I had heard anybody talk about the Hindu Parthenon. Hmm. You know, I was familiar with the Greek, you know, and all Western, but this was the Hindu Parthenon, which was really interesting. And it was science fiction. And like, how do you meld those two? But it was, it's an older book and most older science fiction does not stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're going to have this device that's as, you know, as, as big as a book and I'll be able to talk into it and someone can hear it someplace else. Like we have those now. And, it, and they it, fit in your pocket. And they fit in your pocket. And it, and it has like all the world at your fingertips. But what he did was it was uh, set on a future world and, you know, a world that had been colonized. And um, it used sort of religious terms for the technology. They never try to explain how they did body transfer. They called it reincarnation. So it was a world where the astronauts or the, the crew gets to this world. They've got a whole container. Their ship is filled with people in stasis. And they discover there are actually people living on this world or creatures that don't want to give it up. They're, and they, over the years, over the many hundreds of years it took them to fly there, they have been reincarnating themselves or transferring their consciousness from a new, into a new grown body. And over time, they develop special powers or abilities. Hmm. And they defeat the, you know, they, this is set after the, after they've defeated the creatures that live there or the, the aliens that live there and they let everybody go, but they didn't give them any access to technology hmm. because they set themselves up as the Hindu gods. 
And it's just fascinating because you can read it. And again, they don't try to explain anything with like atomic power. It's just, it's very amorphous and it's left to your imagination. Mysterious. Yeah. And it's what happens is one of the, one of the original crew, crew members decides that the people deserve technology because the gods have actually been actively tamping down any technology. They mm. want to keep the people sort of at a very, you know, they're building buildings and things, but it's all, you know, hand-hewn kind of stuff. Um, and he just decides that he's had enough, that these people need to evolve. And he sort of starts a revolution of his own. Like he introduces Buddhism. Like mm. he sort of like fakes Buddhism um, just to sort of throw a wrench in their plans. It's a, it's a really, it's not a very long book. When did you first read this or encounter this book? I encountered that book in a bookstore in Hinsdale, Massachusetts um, when I was working at the summer camp. You know, we had our day off. Time and, we, and place. And that was a while ago. That was a long, long time ago. Wow. And, and the book was written long before that because this was a dog-eared used copy that I had until recently. In fact, I looked in my book of camp, my box of camp stuff, and I thought my original copy would still be in there. But it wasn't, so I don't know where it is. But uh, it is back in print. Remind me of the title again. Lord of Light Lord. by Roger Zelazny. Actually, there is a copy in the middle school because they bought it, or at least there was a little paperback copy of it. But he wrote a lot of sci-fi fantasy stuff. And again, you know, most of the stuff you read from the early 60s, just, you know. Yeah. It's, it's outdated. cute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yep. funny. Yep. Wow. Like, awesome. Oh, we had that in 85. <laughs> you know, when you're saying it's 20, you know, 2090 or something. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, I'm going to check that out. It sounds interesting. Thank you very much, AJ, for coming on today. It was a pleasure to catch up with you. Oh, it was great. It's great. Always good to be back. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.